What's up, everyone? Welcome to the No Time Theology Podcast, a Bible-based theological show where we dive into the big topics and questions of our Christian faith. Today, we are discussing worship in the church. How are we to worship God? What does the Bible prescribe concerning praise and worship? Should churches sing contemporary tunes or exclusively hymns? Before we dive into this topic, we first need to lay the foundation for why this is even significant for us to talk about. In recent years, there has been a lot of controversy as praise music shifts from standard hymnody to sounding more like the music of our day. Some modern artists, such as Michael W. Smith, paved the way for contemporary music, shifting away from classic praise to something new, yet not being as radical as what we will later see in the 21st century. So this new movement away from the songs that the church has sung for hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years, led to bands such as Hillsong Worship, Jesus Culture, Bethel Music, Maverick City, and so on, coming onto the scene and shifting the way evangelicals offer praises to the Lord in His sanctuary. So now, there are some who would be quick to say that all CCM, all contemporary Christian music, and potentially even new gospel music is void of sound theology and truth concerning God. However, I personally would not go that far. Even someone as conservative as Pastor John MacArthur does not go so far. In a Q&A session before his congregation, a member of his church asked him about CCM, what he thought about uh, churches singing Uh, contemporary Christian songs in the worship service on the Lord's Day. And this questioner, I believe, was particularly asking about Bethel music. MacArthur replied that indeed there were some songs that Christians could freely sing by Bethel and other modern groups because they offered praise predicated upon biblical truth and sound thinking about God. And this is true, I I agree, perhaps these songs deliver truth in new ways, but so long as the lyrics are rooted in scripture, then I am going to be free to sing them in the same manner, just because hymns are old, I'm not just going to sing hymns because they're old, they need to be rooted in scripture. However, I cannot be completely lulled by the sweet sounds of modern synthesizers and rolling cymbals. There is a cognitive element of worship. That must not be forgotten. And because we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, ultimately. And this is why we must exercise caution. Because a lot of these big music groups are linked to a ministry. And we must take a look at the doctrines of these particular ministries. For example, Chris Vallotton, or Vallotton, however you pronounce the gentleman's name. He is uh, a prophet at Bethel Church who espouses post-millennialism and who prophesied wrongly when it came to the Trump election, or I suppose Trump winning this last election. And so you have some elements of false teaching there when it comes to wrong prophecies and speaking on behalf of God wrongly, perhaps even going as far as blaspheming God's name when Verlaten apologized for this as well. And he teaches post-millennialism, which is a 
view of last things that most Christians in America today do not subscribe to. It is an alternative view from premillennialism, my own personal persuasion, amillennialism. And perhaps you go to a church that doesn't subscribe to postmillennial thinking. Well, does this mean that you can't sing their songs? Perhaps not so. I don't necessarily think that every single song... Um, for example, that comes out of Bethel means that you need to subscribe to their particular eschatology. But it is something to keep in mind. And the bigger thing is the false prophecies about, about God. <laughs> the false prophetic insight that certainly cannot go without criticism. And there are other traditions within Bethel Church, such as grave soaking that we have seen, believing that anointing resides within the bones and uh, corpses of people who have passed and soaking up that so-called anointing that uh, is still alive in their bones even though that person is long gone and other things like honey pots and all the stuff that you can look up on YouTube. So there's some weird things that even occur in Bethel music but does that mean that we need to fully uh, avoid seeing any type of song that comes out from them? Some people would say yes, some people would say no. And I think it's interesting to think about because even Justin Bieber's new music, which is influenced by Carl Lentz, a teacher who cheated on his wife and thus disqualified himself from his teaching position in the church. I mean, because Justin has been influenced by Lentz, does that mean that we completely anathematize his music, just get rid of it and say no one can listen to this ever? These are interesting questions that we have to really ponder. And I think it's important, and it's important to be fair and critical, because what we sing to God is important. And the, the lyrics that we put up on our PowerPoint slides, we are endorsing. We are The worship leader is saying, hey, if, the congregation, you ought to sing these lyrics to God. And sometimes, quite honestly, I, I've, had, I've been in situations where I personally have not felt too comfortable singing some of the lyrics that has happened uh, to me at my university in some in some chapel services, there are some songs that I say, personally, I'm not persuaded this way theologically, and so I'm not, it's not going to be true worship, true praise, true submission and adoration for me to exalt an aspect of God that I do not believe is an aspect of God. And so in some way, we do need to remain true to our convictions. And also along with that, we have to keep in mind that if your church is really uh, trying to be lawful and legal, with their uh, PowerPoint slides, then you are going to need to pay a CCLI licensing uh, agreement, which means that money, not only intellectual uh, sponsorship, but actual money is going to these ministries. So for example, if you sing uh, a song by Elevation Worship and you really agree with uh, Stephen Furtick's theology, um, then by all means, send them money. But if you are a part of a persuasion that perhaps does not, then even singing those songs and having to pay a CCLI licensing agreement means that you are actually monetarily sponsoring that ministry. And so this presents a challenge, a really big ethical challenge, a practical challenge. How do we engage in choosing what songs we sing? Because we also have to understand that not only are we paying money to these groups, but we are sponsoring their ministries by telling our people, hey, go to this ministry and grow. 
And this is truly something that we need to be cautious with. Because even me, myself, when I was younger in the faith, I would be really drawn to certain types of music and certain songs, and I didn't really understand what was underlying the things that were being sung. And indeed, we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to uh, worship God in spirit and in truth, and worship Him with all of our soul, mind, our, our strength, our heart. I've been doing some research on some old heresies that popped up during church history, and I think it's important to note the Nestorian heresy of Christ, and one of the principles of this heresy was Christ not having the mind of humans, that he had some other type of divine mind, that he did not feel as humans felt, he was not tempted as humans are tempted, so on and so forth. He did not empathize or sympathize as humans do, but if Christ did not indwell our minds, then he did not resurrect and redeem those minds. And truly, later in the Declaration of Faith at a church council at Chalcedon in the 8th century, they declared that Christ was truly God and truly Man, meaning that his his essences of divinity and humanity were united yet to not commingle. So for us, in layman's terms, that means that Christ has redeemed all of humanity, all of the parts of humanity. Therefore, we ought to worship Him with our mind, and so be cautious with how we offer praise to Him. So with this foundation laid, I want us to look at the Bible now to see ways in which we should sing. Of God. So let's first look at Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 17. In this passage we read, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Silla, I believe it's pronounced, sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known, and I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in idols, who say to middle images, You are our gods. In this passage, we read the, the, the huge imperative, sing to the Lord a new song. Indeed, we should be writing new music and creating new songs to honor praise to God with. Next, let's turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us birth their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will sing of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In these passages, we observe the character of God. And not only this, but in Psalm 2 specifically, we see a Trinitarian conversation going on between the Father and the Son. So, in our praise music, just as this psalm declares, we ought to openly declare and proclaim the character of God, transcendental truths about the Trinity, God's judgment, and His protection over His people. Just as preachers must herald the full counsel of God, I do not believe that worship leaders are off the hook. So, the heart of the issue between CCM and hymns does not lie in genre distinction, but in content. I don't want to sing anything simply because it is old, nor do I want to sing anything because it is new. I want to sing something because it exalts the name of God and proclaims truth concerning His name, just like Psalm 2 does. I think it's important to note that in the Old Testament, worship was not a, a static, unchanging event. Abraham worshipped the Lord by building altars right, and, and offering sacrifices upon them as he traveled, um, not to mention having faith and obeying the Lord, which is always unchanging. Israel set up the tabernacle, and the priests offered praise uh, within the boundaries that God prescribed for his own honor. When the sons of Aaron stepped outside of these boundaries by offering strange fire, they were consumed. When Solomon reigned, he constructed the temple, which was to be the center of worship for all Israel. So, in all this, although modes of worship may change, its heart never changes. At the center of worship is adoration of God, the exaltation of His character, and the submission of His people. So we now have to ask not only what the Bible sets as precedent for true worship, but what it prescribes as true worship. And so for this, I, I think it's important that we look at a few uh, epistolary um, uh, sections from the epistles of the New Testament, which are largely about the manner in which uh, the church should conduct itself as the people of God. So in Mark 14, we see Jesus institute the Lord's Supper. And this ordinance of the church was expounded upon by Paul in his first epistle uh, to the Corinthian assembly. And in 1 Corinthians, we learn that this particular church, the Corinthian church, was worshiping God improperly. Paul would not have to talk to them. I think this is super important to know. Paul would not have to talk to them about taking the Lord's Supper in an in a worthy manner, if they were not doing it in an unworthy manner. So this is what he tells them. Let's let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 23-31, do a little bit of reading here. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I think it's important to note that in our modern context, just like the Corinthians did here, it's so easy to follow our own inclinations or pragmatic thoughts about worship that we actually end up sinning against God. The Lord has prescribed particular regulations and principles upon worship. And when it comes to what Paul is discussing here, we are not only to take the Lord's Supper, but take it in a worthy manner. And if not, we drink judgment, he writes. Later in the letter, Paul talks about this in the context of the Corinthian believers exercising their spiritual gifts and uh, performing the order of worship. So this is in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. Let's read this briefly. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one. <clears throat> if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church, and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Mind you, just an interjection. I think it's important that I make a podcast on that verse soon. So I'll probably get that in the works pretty soon. It's an interesting one. But let's move on. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So I think in this passage it's very important to understand that there are specific rules and regulations for the order of church services. We need to follow these regulations. And this is personally why I lean toward the regulative principle of worship over the normative principle. The normative says anything goes so long as it is not prohibited in the scriptures. However, the regulative says that what scripture has prescribed is what we follow. So to put it differently, the regulative principle looks at scripture and sees it as a set of unalterable regulations that tell us how we are to worship. 
Um, while the normative principle sees scripture as a set of scriptures for us to, to follow in worship. So we are to worship with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so says Paul. Therefore, let us worship with such things within the boundary the Bible has set before us. Some even argue uh, that worship should be a cappella, since the New Testament does not prescribe the use of instruments. But, in contrary, or in contrast to that, we read in Psalm 150, Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound, praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance, praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals, praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So, since this psalm seems to be written in what we can call the imperative mode, it's being, uh, it's in its command form, it's an exhortation for us to follow, I think it's reasonable to, to say that we are to worship God in this manner that this psalm actually prescribes. And while we do so, we must bear in mind what God has called us to do is to worship Him in spirit and in truth within the boundaries that He has set for us. So... If I may finally return to the question at hand. Yes, we can sing both contemporary tunes and hymns. If we exclusively sing hymns, we may miss out on modern classics, and after all, everything was contemporary at some point in time. At the same time, if we exclusively sing CCM tunes, we will miss out on the joys of celebrating the fact that we are not isolated Christians. I, when I was younger, I used to think that my church was, like, the only church, <laughs> and the other traditions were flat-out wrong, but I am a part, you are a part of the body of Christ, the, the global body of Christ, and sure, maybe we don't have to recite the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed every time we gather for worship on the Lord's Day, but we can sing both old hymns and modern classics all of them being doctrinally sound, all of us bearing in mind who was the writer of this. Obviously, we want to be cautious with our worship. But we can sing both old hymns and modern tunes to remind us that God's plan did not start with us, nor does it end with us. In reality, God's plan began with Him alone and will end with Him alone. So in everything that we do, let God get the glory. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to follow or subscribe on YouTube, Anchor, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And also, please be sure to check out our Instagram at No Time Theology. Be blessed.